Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and before we get into this episode, I'd like to tell you about a new project I have, a side gig for Team Guru. It's called Your Story Pod. It's all about helping people tell their life story and recording it in quality audio for your family to keep forever. The idea for Your Story Pod came from a listener to this podcast. He wrote to me and said, I love the way you interview on your show and I'm wondering if you'd interview my dad to get his life story while he's still around. So I did. And it was an amazing experience for me, for the dad I interviewed, for his family who listened and will get to keep the interview, the audio package, forever. When they heard it, they told me, we've been listening to dad's stories for years, but we've never heard him talk about half the stuff he told you. So word got around and more requests started rolling in. And I get as much enjoyment out of these conversations as the families do. It started to emerge as a wonderful way to use the skills I've developed interviewing people for this show in a brand new way. Jump online and have a look. Yourstorypod.com.au I released a short special about it on the Team Guru podcast stream last week. There's samples from the interviews I've done so far. Check it out. And if there's someone you care about who should record their life story, get in touch and we'll make it happen. Just go to yourstorypod.com.au. And now to this episode. After all the conversations I've had for this podcast, this one, the one you're about to hear may very well be the most important I've ever recorded. It's about raising tech-savvy and tech-safe young humans. Why does this conversation belong in a leadership podcast, you might ask? Well, in my very humble opinion, our ability to lead our family and ourselves within the home and in life generally is our most important role as a leader. And the world we live in, with all its convenient interconnectedness, its immediacy, get it now, like it, review it, rate it, type culture, it's wonderful, it's magical, but at the same time it's dangerous and a little scary. What does tech do to the brains of our children? How much screen time should they get? When should they get their first phone? How do we help them navigate through the murky waters of social media? They're questions that keep parents awake at night, and they're questions that can lead to tension and arguments in the home. But as luck would have it, I know someone who can help. Daniel C. is a brilliant guy. Among his many talents, Daniel is a tech and productivity expert, and he brings into this space raising tech-savvy adults a unique kindness and insight that many of you will find game-changing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Daniel C. Daniel C., welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks so much, Dave. Great to be here. Hey, now, it took all of my self-control, not as soon as we started talking, not to start praising your book so much because over a million years of podcasting, I've learned not to talk about the good stuff before we hit record. Daniel, your new book, Raising Tech Healthy Humans, How to Reset Your Children's Tech Habits and Give Them a Great Start to Life is absolutely amazing. I read it as you designed in a couple of hours. I couldn't put it down. I'm invested in it as a topic because my kids are four, six, and nine. It matters a lot. I live in this modern world. I see and feel the dilemmas that we all have as adults and as parents. And your book 
is just absolutely fantastic. I was waxing lyrical about it last night. My wife's going to read it. Our nanny, who looks after our kids five days a week, is going to read it. It is fantastic. You've done an amazing job, mate. Oh, look, that means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I really feel like I was in the sweet spot of your audience. You know, in preparing for this conversation, you've loaded me with all of this incredible insight. You've given me numbers and and real stats and an understanding to hold on to, stuff that I kind of intuitively knew as as a member of society in this modern world, but you gave me some real language and some real numbers, and you gave me a whole bunch of, of really practical tips to help guide my family through this next phase of our life as they grow up and start to want to access this stuff. So look, and you've done my job for me. You've planned this podcast by creating a brilliant framework, and we'll talk through the framework, but Before we get to the framework, let's talk about the gravity of the challenge that you face as a parent, I face, and everyone who's tuned into this podcast faces as parents. What is the challenge that we're staring down? Yeah. And look, the challenge is what the title is about, you know, raising tech healthy humans. I wrestled for a long time with the title because I really like the title Raising Humans. And my publisher and others said, look, people won't know what the book's about. But Because the heart is about raising children. It's not actually about tech. It's about raising humans who have a breadth and depth of experience, mm. who are healthy, who climb trees and ride bikes and, and experience boredom and have creative imaginations, you know, humans who interact with other humans and who experience the type of life I want to live for myself and I want my kids to live. Uh, and that includes technology. It includes great movies and learning, you know, how to code data and touch type and and play games, you know, all that kind of great stuff from the internet. But it has to be much, much broader than the internet. And the risk or the gravity of the problem is that we are in a culture where it really is hard as parents to raise kids in that way that where they experience humanity in its fullness because so much of the world is gravitationally online. Mm. I'm reminded of a a story where I was in Vanuatu and one of my friends actually got caught in a riptide and he was pulled out to sea and he was only a young guy, he was like 15 at the time and it took like an hour and a half to pull him back and you know his dad thought he you know we, we might lose him but we got him back but I think a riptide's a really great example of the culture that we live in we live in a riptide where the gravitational pull that the, the pull of culture is to draw us into being constantly online mm always on the internet, particularly our young kids, you know, always drawn towards the next game or the next social media app or the next show on YouTube. And, and if we if we don't do anything, the kids will Get be pulled out to sea. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so we actually need to be active and intentional in raising humans <laughs> who have that love of life that is beyond the tech world, including the tech world, but far beyond it. And that's really hard as parents, as you know. It's hard to do that and not be anti-tech. It's hard to have this balanced, constructive view of technology and screen time and yet also have firm boundaries, which are often different than the culture of the families around us. But it's about raising humans who love life. You know what? I can see your rationale behind wanting to call your book Raising Humans because we're raising humans in a tech world, so it's part of it. But your book is a little, it's broad. It it is about raising humans, but it's so tech focused. So I can see your publisher's point of view there. And I love your analogy about being pulled out in a, in a rip because 
you know, we've got to be thoughtful as parents about the way we manage this in our lives and our children's lives because the two extremes aren't going to work. You know, the one extreme is just, you know, carte blanche, let them go for it because we know that everything is designed to suck them in. We've all watched that fabulous documentary, The Social Dilemma, which talks about the fact that it's so harmful for kids' development. It's harmful for us as adults, let alone for our kids' brains. So that end of the extreme is not an option unless you want to raise kids who have all sorts of social and emotional problems. And your book is full of stats about that. And the other end of the scale is not reasonable either to ignore tech and have it not play any part of our life because that is simply not realistic. Our kids are going to be exposed to it through their social groups, through school, etc. They're going to need to access it in their work and even just managing themselves as an adult. So the only choice is to sit in the middle and be really wise and deliberate about the way we introduce it into our family and into our children's lives. And your book does that really nicely. Hey, one of the early concepts that I loved in your book, and this was in the chapter before you introduced the framework, was the idea of raising adults, not children. That was really powerful to me. Yeah, look, a dear friend of mine uh, who has actually since passed away, uh, when I first had my child, he said, you know, don't forget that your role as a parent is to raise an adult, not a child. And what he meant by that, it wasn't to neglect childhood and the, you know, the playfulness of childhood or to put burdens on my kids before their time. But what he was saying is the end game is that we're raising adults. We're not raising immature children who stay immature. You know, like we say that 30 is the new 20 and I actually don't think it should be. I think, you know, in your 20s, you should be an adult. And so that requires a whole set of principles and values and ways of setting your kids up so that they can grow into adulthood earlier, not before their time. And what I mean by that is it's just you know, expose them to the stuff that they need to expose to to build resilience. Uh, I love the work of Jonathan Hyde and his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And he says that kids are not fragile like a teacup, they're anti-fragile. And like I like being, yeah, like a muscle. You know, I used to be a physiotherapist. So if you want to build muscle, you have to stretch yourself to capacity, stretch and tear the mu- microfibers of your muscles. And that's how you get stronger. So humans are the opposite of, let's say, a teacup. Whereas if you drop it, it breaks. Actually, if you stretch people, kids or adults to capacity, not beyond capacity, there is this kind of sweet spot. But if you keep stretching them, give them risks, give them adventures, help them, you know, use their physical you know, their physicality and stretch their minds, help them to learn how to say sorry, stretch their moral goodness, you know, put them to the capacity of where they can go and and then teach them how to build that resilience that they will become stronger and healthier. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is that when we fill our kids with online activity, you know, like dying and respawning on a program isn't the same as falling down off of a bike and getting back up and riding again, you know what I mean? So we're not training our kids to be adults. We're actually keeping them as children and we're coddling them. And so part of the process that I have in this book is, yeah, at what stage can we help kids be adults in a way that just just stretches them a little bit further, that they can do a little bit more next year than they did this year? I'm astounded at how many, and this isn't a judgment, but how many, you know, let's say older teenagers that they're still getting their lunch made for them by their mum, for example. And I'm like, well, by the time that you're a teenager, you know, and you're doing all the stuff you can do, you can make your own lunch, you can clean the toilets, you, you can, I don't know, you know, you can feed the pets. And, and so stretch the kids to start having adult responsibilities when they start to age. That, that's part of the heart in the book. The, that term, raising adults, not children, is one of those really powerful concepts that 
it puts into words, into a, a really neat set of, of words, what we kind of know as parents and we talk about every now and then, my wife and I, oh, you know, what's that going to be like when he's an adult if he keeps doing that? Or, you know, we've got to get him to do this because, you know, when he's an adult, but your concept is just so profound and it puts language around that, as I say, that principle that we sort of stumble around from time to time. You know, the one of the things I really loved early in your book, again, another of the things was the introduction of the concept of the downstairs brain and the upstairs brain. And um, that is not something that I did understand before. And it's something that's really central to your book. Can you tell us about the downstairs and upstairs brain? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really helpful concept. Those terms came from Dr. Daniel Siegel, who has just got some great work on brain neuropsychology. And so he talks about the difference between the downstairs brain, which is like the lizard brain, which I'm sure people have heard about. It's the brain stem, the uh, amygdala, the, the type of fight, flight or freeze part of the brain, which is right at the deep part of the brain. So that's why it's downstairs. And it's the type of brain that, you know, you need to react and respond. So for example, you know, if you touch something hot, you immediately pull back. Or if you experience something fearful, then you experience this uh, reaction in your body where you breathe more, your eyes dilate, etc. And so that's really important. But then you have the upstairs brain, which is like the squiggly part, you know, the prefrontal cortex that goes all around the uh, inner part of the brain. And that part of the brain isn't as well developed when you're young. It, it takes time. This is what neuroplasticity is about. Our upstairs brain develops based on the repetitive experiences that we have, particularly at a young age. And so uh, parts of the brain that are related to creativity and deep thought, uh, morality, the ability to have impulse control, to have empathy, you know, those kind of adult functions, those human functions that you know, we celebrate in our heroes, those, those functions actually just aren't there straight away. This is why you, know, you take something from a little child and they just cry and scream and have a temper fit because they're, they're downstairs. Lizard, lizard brain. Yeah, their downstairs brain's great. They're really good at kind of firing up that emotional center, which kind of was what we love about kids as well as we struggle as parents because there's no filter. But we need the filter. <laughs> we need to develop the parts of the brain that make us healthy and, and functioning, that make us likable as people, as we're adult, as we become adults. Uh, and the problem with a lot of technology, particularly interactive screens, is they are specifically designed to ramp up stimulation in the downstairs brain, the types of uh, functions that make you fearful and make you excited. There's a lot of work, and I love the work of Victoria Dunkley. She talks about uh, she was an, she works with um, children in addiction clinics, and she ended up taking a bunch of her clients who had a whole lot of different either neurodiversities or conditions, for example, even depression or uh, conditions like psychoses, and took them off their medication and basically gave them a four-week screen fast. And in 80% of her clients improved their symptoms by more than 50% by no longer stimulating the downstairs brain with Fortnite and Minecraft and World of Warcraft and, and all these games which are fundamentally designed to so ramp up that lizard part of your brain. So, they, so didn't really have a, they didn't have a condition. They just used the screen too much and their well, downstairs I, brain was too stimulated. Well, I don't know if they didn't have a condition, but certainly what you would say is a significant part of their symptoms, their lack of impulse control, their mood regulation, their lack of sleep, their inability to be patient or to have an interest outside of a screen. Yeah, that was socially conditioned based on high amounts of use of these types of games. Yeah, absolutely. So 
the upstairs brain has got to develop. That's our executive function, the bit that allows us to think and interact socially and be empathetic and all of those things that are nod lizard reptile reactions that we're very good at, the downstairs brain. Does that mean that we need to keep tech away from our kids until they are fully developed in their upstairs brain? Yeah, so I think that's, again, you know, you talked about black or white thinking at the start, and this is where it's a bit more complicated because if we can't just take away tech from our kids entirely because that's not the world they live in and it's actually not healthy. There are some really helpful parts of technology that increase our you know, stimulation that make us engage in the world in positive ways. I have an expression where I say, let's grade up as they grow up, and I think that's really my approach. So if you look at the national guidelines of screen time in Australia, as well as America and the UK, the recommendations are no screens from zero to two years old. Like This is when the brain is absolutely plastic. Every single experience your kids get will shape their prefrontal cortex and their developing brain. And kids who are overexposed to screens at that very young age end up with lower literacy and numeracy skills later on, and it impacts their ability to have empathy. So the recommendations is, yes, no screens. I mean, potentially you could use screens for FaceTiming friends and family, you know, if they're a distance, like as long as you're with them, but basically don't have screens. After two years old, so between three to five years old, the recommendation is one hour a day of screen time. But again, it's not just screen time. You know, it has to be appropriate content, ideally interactive with parents, co-watching where possible, which is, you know, sounds incredibly hard. And I'm, I'm not trying to paint a picture of life that is idealistic and impossible nowadays, but they're good guidelines to at least say, let's not miss this by too far. And after that, as their brain starts to develop more, well then, yeah, two hours a day of helpful content with a balance of outdoor activity and exercise and reading and, you know, face-to-face community time, then, you know, that is not going to create damaged humans, for example. As they enter into high school, well, then I still think two hours a day is a good recommendation outside of study and homework. But it's not just about the screen time. It's about giving our kids really broad and rich and diverse experiences of their brain and recognizing that actually too much screen time too young is actually really counterproductive. So particularly the first five years, yes, we need to, well, there is no risk of not giving your kids a screen. That's a really good way to put it. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. All right, so I've got one more question about a foundation concept, and then we'll get into Daniel's framework. So if you're listening along, waiting for the really tangible tips that are about to come, but it's important that we lay these these foundational principles first. One of the other things that I got out of your book, and I'd never thought about the difference in this, is the, the tech that you describe as either leaning back or leaning forward tech. And I can't believe I've never seen the distinction before, but now that I've read it in your book, it is smacking me in the face. Tell us about that and why it's so important. Yeah. And it relates again to this kind of downstairs, upstairs brain stuff as well. So, you know, McMahon, and I wrote this in my previous book, Space Maker, talks a lot about the medium being the message. Yeah. And so the content does matter. You know, clearly giving our children R-rated videos is quite different than uh, G-rated when they're young. But I think most parents should get that idea. <laughs> but But the medium also matters because when you put something into a different medium, actually the experience changes dramatically. And I think this is where the lean forward and lean back idea comes from. So leaning back 
technologies are the passive type screens that we've almost almost always had, certainly since I've been alive. So like television screens, and this would even include new media like Netflix, where you are sitting back, you're watching someone present something to you and it's largely passive. You're receiving content. Lean forwards technology is where you're swiping on a screen and, and typing and engaging and, and changing the texture of what's happening. So typically iPads, you know, smartphones, et cetera. Games, um, basically any console game, games. Games, console games, educational games mm. as well. Games that say they're educational, but they are highly interactive. They often have flashing lights and variable rewards and, and you get social cues like likes from other people. Like my son does coding and he still gets likes and all this stuff from his coding community. So it's educational, but it's built on the premise of the downstairs brain where you ramp up the part of the brain that is involved in fight or flight or freeze. That's almost like you give your kids an amphetamine hit and then when they come off of it, the hit dies and you get bad behavior and they want more screens. That is how these are designed. Like there's a book called um, uh, Glow Kids, which talks about Minecraft and how it was designed and how the developers looked at Minecraft and they thought, well, they, they intentionally watched kids' pupils and their automatic responses and tried to make it as downstairs brain oriented as possible. So you have to hide from monsters at nighttime. That's very caveman-like. When you dig, you suddenly randomly get gems and other things, which are all based on variable rewards. So this so-called educational game is actually, it's lean forward. And anything that is lean forward has a stronger stimulation on parts of the brain. You can do half an hour of lean forward screen time and it, it interrupts your sleep, whereas two hours of lean back passive. passive technology interrupts your sleep. So when we consider what types of screens to give to our kids, I think it's really important to actually lean towards leaning back technologies, which is counterculture because most of us think, oh, that's lazy. Yeah, lazy TVs. Yeah, I'm just watching TV. They're being lazy. When actually it doesn't ramp up the part of the brain that you don't want to overstimulate mm -hmm. when they're young. So yeah, it's just be thoughtful. Again, don't avoid it entirely, but I would say particularly zero to five years old and even you know the early primary years, we made a conscious decision because of my knowledge in this area to lean or like to, to not use iPads, to not use tablets and to not use smartphones with our kids and to try to get them to use screens instead that were passive. So that's a different type of thinking, but it is based on the brain research. So powerful. And that counterintuitive nature of it, which says, oh, well, if they're going to be involved in a screen, at least them want them thinking and engaged in doing something rather than just laying back in the couch and, and letting it flow over them. But actually, it's the opposite, which is true because the passive stuff doesn't stimulate their brain so much. Isn't it telling? And The Social Dilemma, that fabulous documentary, and it's part of, you know, sort of uh, modern mythology, is that tech CEOs, Silicon Valley CEOs, are really unlikely to give their kids technology. Steve Jobs, the, the guru of all Silicon Valley CEOs, he didn't let his kids have an iPad, believe it or not. He wanted to sit at dinner and talk to his kids about what they did during their day, about literature, about anything except swiping and, and zooming and, and playing the flashing blue light. I think that's incredibly telling, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, and it's not just, you know, the older CEOs like Steve Jobs. I mean, even Evan Spiegel, time. like the CEO of Snapchat, the founder of Snapchat, he, he only gave his stepson 90 minutes of screen time a week. Mm -hmm. Like if we did that, we'd be kind of, it'd be child abuse. And Snapchat would <laughs> be broke. I mean, <laughs> isn't that the, the wonderful would, poetic yeah. irony? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Sundar Pichai, the, the Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, again, is very careful about his own screen time. So it's we need to recognize that those who develop the technologies know what they they're know. doing. And we should follow their lead, not the lead of our parents or our educational institutions who don't actually understand how these lean forward technologies have been developed. And we should just take a slower approach. Again, there is no risk in going slower in primary school with technology. I really don't think that you know, reducing the amount of technology that happens is going to have any longer term negative effects, but there's lots of risks by overcooking it. Again, my assumption is we're in this riptide. So we're not talking about no technology altogether forever. No swimming. Uh, we're, not, yeah. we're not saying don't swim. We basically are surrounded by water. And that's why my message is you know, more on the abstinence or the reduction side, because my assumption is that you're going to overuse your tech and your family are going to overuse their tech. So that's not a problem, Yeah, which is worth the counterbalance. All right, let's get into the real tangible stuff. Daniel's framework, which he presents in his book, is an acrostic, a, a lovely, neat little acrostic, which is called Starter. And the letters stand for start with self, take it slowly, age-appropriate setup, regular talk, tech healthy rhythms, encourage adventures, rely on others. So we probably don't, we obviously don't have time to go through all of these in great detail, but let's talk about some important stuff. One of the threads that's through your book, and it's not the only thread, but it's an important one, is about giving your kid a phone. So let's talk about your framework in the context of smartphones initially. Tell us about your thinking when it comes to smartphones. This is a question that pops up in our family already. Our oldest is nine. He's not begging for it, but he's asking when it will happen. He sort of wants to understand our thinking around it. What's your advice? Actually, let's start with what are those three reasons parents give you for giving their kids smartphones really early and, and why are they wrong? Yeah, look, great question. And one of the key questions I'm asked when I speak, I mean, I originally didn't start teaching about parenting because I wrote a book, Space Maker, and it's about adults and executives and leaders and how we can overuse digital technology and what to do about it. But when I speak on it, the number one question that always comes up is, when do I give my kid a smartphone? Which is not what I was actually talking about. Uh, but it's definitely on our mind because of the social pressure. The three reasons that parents give me in seminars when I ask, well, why are we giving our kids smartphones so young? And I think the, you know, the age just gets lower and lower every year. I drafted my book like nine months ago, and then I've had to change the stats since. I think now the average age of kids who receive phones are at 7.4 years old, which is extremely young. I nearly fell over when I read that. Yeah, and increasingly a larger a larger percentage of kids actually have phones in primary school. So, you know, it really is becoming ubiquitous and the social pressure is on for us. So the three main reasons are we want to keep them safe. That is, I would say, the number one reason parents give me. Uh, they catch the bus or they go, go to sport and I need them to have a phone to be safe. Uh, the second one is I want them like they're just nagging and the social pressure is just super tough. I don't want them to miss out and be, you know, the, be the last kid in the school ground to be picked at soccer, that kind of idea. And the third one, you know, it doesn't come up much anymore, but, you know, something about we need, the kids need technology because they live in a tech world for their education and their kind of development. I think all three, I address all three in the book, and I think they're myths, uh, certainly not backed by research. Now, in terms of safety, I think that's the biggest myth of all. I understand, in fact, I really value and love the heart of parents nowadays that we care greatly about our kids and safety. Like, I love that our culture is not, you know, kids are seen to be seen and not heard. I love that we care about their mental health, their physical safety, and we're 
we're almost hypervigilant, but it's good that we want to keep our kids protected from strangers. That the problem is that just the evidence doesn't back up why we're doing it. So from a, let's say, a homicide stats perspective, you know, the world is safer than it used to be, certainly Australia. There's less homicide, there's less abductions than there used to be, and it used to always be extremely rare, and if it did happen, it was people you knew. So while that's happening, the world is physically actually less safe, less dangerous than when I was young, even though it feels more dangerous because we see everything we see on, on the internet. You know, every time we something the bad, bad happens, we experience it, we hear every story the moment we wake up. So the world feels terrifying, but in reality, there's less murder than there used to be, less abductions. On, on the other hand, we give our kids phones to be safe, and yet a lot of the danger is through their mental health and through cyber safety, so online grooming, through being interacting with strangers that they actually meet through the internet, exposure to pornography and other sexually explicit content, which is now ubiquitous in our culture and really impacts kids' mental health and happiness. And cyberbullying, which is, again, really, really prevalent through their friends, particularly when they access social media. And so the number one cause of death, tragically, in Australia for young people is suicide. Tragic. Uh, and mental health statistics, which are the cause of suicide, like anxiety, depression, self-harm. Like the Mental health is really bad in young people, and it's worse and worse. It's been worse and worse in the last 10 years as technology seems to uptake more. So I can't say that, I'm certainly not saying that all mental health problems are related to technology, but there's certainly a thread and the complete and ubiquitous use of technology impacts kids' mental health, even if you look at what they're not doing to make them happier as a result. The people that they're not interacting with face-to-face, which makes them happy because they're at home using social internet. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is we give our kids phones to keep them safe, but it actually makes them more unsafe. Wow. And- and you make yeah. that point very nicely in your book. The the irony, the sad, bitter irony is that behind trying to make our world safer for our kids, keeping them inside, that we don't let them wander the streets like you and I did in the 70s and the 80s. We are taking, stealing away from them the opportunities to fall over and graze their knee and fall out of a tree and break their arm to meet people they might not otherwise meet. We're keeping them inside. And inside often means more screen time we're actually making them much less safe. It's a different type of less safe. It's it's an emotional and a psychological less safe. You Definitely. reminded me before, you know, talking about the fact that we live in a much safer world. I, I read a wonderful book a little while ago by a guy called Daniel Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. No, his name's Stephen Pinker, sorry. The Better Angels of Our Nature. And it was all about exactly what you said. We live in a much safer world than ever before. It's just that we we experience it so much through the news. Any time something bad happens, there's wall-to-wall coverage on the news, on the internet, on Twitter, and we don't escape it. So it feels less safe. But actually, statistically, the story is very clear that our world has never been safer. So there's much less to be afraid of than when we were kids. All right. So that's number one. I give my kid mm. a phone to be mm. safe. The second reason was they're just nagging me. And in brackets, I think that if I give into this and, and give them this thing that they're nagging me about, the nag will go away. Definitely. And uh, look, just to backtrack one thing, I do think it's handy or it can be handy if you want to be in contact with your children. You can give them a dumb phone, dumb phone. so a phone that doesn't have the internet. Text to and give call. them to give them an internet-enabled phone to keep them safe is madness, like mm. if that's your reason. In terms of yeah, nagging, well, the reality is that we do give our kids 
phones just because it's too, too hard to say no. You say no once, you say no twice, you say no three times, and it just becomes exhausting. And other kids have phones and parents seem to be fine with it. And while you're concerned about your child, you know, becoming a little bit addicted or you know, screen obsessed, it's like, well, you I also really love my away. kid. Yeah, well, it's this tension between I want them to not nag and I love them and I want to give them what I think might be best, but maybe I'm wrong because everyone else is right. So there's this social pressure. And when you put that together, it's really hard. But the reality is, again, I, I challenge the nagging myth that when you give your child a phone, nagging doesn't stop. In fact, I would only say that the nagging increases because you need to continue to maintain some sense of healthy tech boundaries. And so as soon as they have a phone, let's say in primary school, then the next question is, can I have Snapchat, which is really bad for them from like, yeah, we won't go into social media yet, but you know, can I have Snapchat? Can I have Instagram? And then it's like, can I watch these movies and can I do this and can I do that? And so at some point you either give up and say, well, you can flow out with the riptide mm. and let's just hope you, you can drown. learn to swim mm. and don't drown. You know, we'll let the shareholders of CEO kind of Silicon Valley tech decide companies your fate. decide your fate. Or you have to keep putting healthy, loving, adult-based boundaries down, knowing that you're raising adults who need to have healthy self-regulation, a love for others, the ability to you know, go outdoors and have real relationships. Again, it's at some point you still need to say no and or not yet. And that sucks as parents. So I suppose I, I think you increase the problem of nagging when you give your child access to an adult device with open access to the adult world and all the ideas that come from that and the design of those technologies. And so slow it down in primary school because there'll be plenty of time to put those boundaries down in high school. One of the things I got from your book is basically you think the nagging's bad now before you give them a smartphone. Wait till you see the type of nagging you'll get for the next stage within my cell phone, uh, my, my smartphone. Okay, so now I've got a smartphone. What about whatever the kids into TikTok? What about Instagram? What about this? What about that? And because that nagging is fueled by this downstairs brain stimulus that they're getting that says they've got to have it, they've got to have it, they've got to have the likes, the thumbs up, the friends, the whatever it is. So you think they're going to nag about having a phone? Well, wait until you give them one and they nag about the next step. That was a point very well made in your book. All right. Now, the third reason that parents say they need to give their kids a smartphone and, and the myth around that? Yeah, so it's just educational outcomes that they need to use tech and they need to use it well, which I 100% agree with. You know, I have a tech-based business. I'm completely, you know, we will all need to be brilliant at technology when we're in almost every career as adults. The myth is that if you don't have a healthy brain, you will never be great at tech, okay? So if a, if a child grows up stimulating the downstairs brain but doesn't learn the upstairs brain parts of functioning life, uh, if they don't know how to have deep relationships, if they don't know how to go outdoors and experience the breadth and depth of experiences, if they don't know how to read a book or just have silence and solitude and address the inner life to self-reflect, all these upstairs brain functions are needed to be great at tech and to be a tech leader or to be a leader of any sort as an adult. And so again, it's about grading up as grow up and grade up. And so grade up as you grow up, I'm sorry. So I think by giving our children less addictive, stimulating technologies when they're young and giving them more life-filled, just everyday human, ordinary experiences. Let their brain their, develop. Their brain will develop in a healthy way 
And then you add tech on that in a graded, healthy way as they grow up, let's say towards the end of primary school and high school, and then they can use it really well because they have a sense of self-efficacy, the ability to control their impulses to a point and to reflect on their own emotions and to have empathy for others. But if they are only great at tech, they'll just be wired and distracted and, and unfocused. They won't know how to single task. In fact, they won't have a reference for the world that you and I have when we get addicted to our phones because you and I both get there. <laughs> But at least we have a reference point. We have neuroplasticity that reminded us of what life was like before that happened. I want our kids to have a reference point. So when they become cyborgs, like Elon Musk says we will all become, then at least they can remember a time when they climbed trees and they went to the beach and they got muddy and messy and jumped in puddles and laughed with friends because they're the experiences of life that make us human, truly human over time. And they're the ones that we remember the most. So my heartbeat is to help our kids be tech leaders and leaders in general by slowing us down in the early years, develop the brain first, and then add tech. All right. Very well made point, Daniel. Now, listen, one of the things that might be, I don't know, confronting is probably too strong a word for parents as they read this book is that your very first part of the framework is to start with self. And and I've done this a few times. I've been prompted before to take a stock take of my own phone use, and it's abysmal. I use my phone in front of my kids. It's a terrible example. We try and be good. We're not always good. One of the things I am good at, and I always feel very smug about this against other parents, is when my kids are at a playground or when they're playing sport, I'm never on my phone. And I always feel sad in my heart when I see a kid out there busting his gut playing a game or having a great time at a playground and mum or dad is sitting over on the side scrolling through Facebook. I think I mean, I've never fallen into that trap, but there are a lot of traps I have fallen into. I'm probably modeling bad behavior. So you ask us to assess our own use. Why is that so important, Daniel? Yeah, look, firstly, I mean, the research suggests and shows quite clearly, actually, that uh, your own screen time behaviors, not screen time, your own screen behaviors and screen beliefs as parents or carers will be passed on and will impact the screen behaviors of your children. And we know this. I mean, I was looking at old home videos the other day and I saw this beautiful video of me and my daughter when she was only like, I don't know, two or maybe three years old. And we're stomping up and down on the kitchen floor. And then I've, I would fall down, just you know, fall on the ground and laugh. And then she would fall down. And then I'd get up and she copied and we would stomp. And then we just did it again and again. And it was so cute. But I remember thinking, watching that video, my kids didn't learn from what I taught them verbally most of the time, they learned from what they imitated or copied, you know, and kids learn by modeling and by following your good habits, you know, the fun stuff like playing with my child, uh, even the bad stuff. Like I have this terrible habit <laughs> and I'm going to admit it on, you know, international ra- uh, podcasting, but I snort. Okay. I have this, I have sinuses. <laughs> I just ha- Yep. Yeah, it's terrible. I sound like a pig. Okay. It's disgusting. And I've been trying for years not to do it, but you know, when I get nervous, I just snort. And then, you know, not long ago, my son was going up and down the stairs and I could, you know, he started snorting and my wife is like, no, it's <laughs> the second one, you know, and then the anything but that. Yeah, exactly. So they copy everything, whether you want them to or not. And so the reality is, and this is the hardest message, but we need to put a mirror to ourselves because we're in the riptide of culture as well. I mean, and as beautiful as technology is, and as much as we need to use it, we can overuse it. My first book, Space Maker, is entirely about that. What is technology? How do we use it really well? But what happens if we overuse it and go into digital overuse? And how do we unplug intentionally to get to that productive middle where we're experiencing the best of tech 
without the worst of tech? And how do we recalibrate the habits of making space in order to live well? So all I'm saying in this book is that you know, we need to put the mirror on our own habits and realize that if we're on the couch exhausted, scrolling through you know, Facebook, for example, on our phone, and then we say to our kids, hey, you guys get off your screens, you're lazy. <laughs> you know, you're on your screens all the time, and then we just keep scrolling because we're so exhausted, we can't get off the couch and do anything else then the message that we we communicate with our actions is is stronger than the the words we use. I'm fumbling for that quote. Something about I can't hear the words you're saying over the sound of what you do. What yeah. that's not right, but it's, it's the, close. It's yeah. close, yeah. Hey, so we'll keep talking, but we're gonna have to wrap it up very soon. Daniel, now there's the you know the the T is take it slowly. We've talked about that and and always be behind the curve with this one. Never be an early adopter. If everyone else is getting phones at their school, it's fine to be the last one. Always take it slowly because our goal there is to develop the upstairs brain. And as you say, we can apply tech over top of a well-developed brain, but if we do it too early and we go too fast, if we're the early adopter, then our upstairs brain is just not going to develop age-appropriate setup. I really like that and some of the, the tips you give in the book about controlling what they access from either the Wi-Fi or on the phone itself. You can disable certain apps. You can disable Wi-Fi after a certain time of night because the stats are terrible about kids waking up during the night and, and checking their email. They don't check email. They're not 50. They, <laughs> they you know check whatever social media they're into during the night. They're up much later than their parents think they're up on social media. So being able to disable that is really appropriate. But I want to get in regular talk, just keep the conversations going, talk about the fact that this is an experience for me as well. We're working on this together. We're going to continue to monitor it adjust it, work together on it. You do a great job of describing that in a book, but let's get to T, tech healthy rhythms. What is so important about establishing rhythms within our household, within our relationship around technology? Yeah, I look, I love the idea of predictable patterns or tech healthy rhythms and non-tech healthy rhythms as well to set culture in our families. So as you mentioned, you know, up to that stage of the book, I do talk about what we shouldn't do and how we can even when our kids do get technological devices like you know, smartphones and tablets, how to set them up without full access to everything. So it's very practical. But ultimately, you can only create boundaries and guardrails for so long in kids' lives. And that's, you know, that's not going to create a passion or a love for goodness or for life or for humanity. It's just going to protect them from some of the dangers of overuse. And so tech healthy rhythms are about how do we actually create healthy, life-giving cultures where we can pass on our values beyond the limits and the boundaries. So you need both at the same time from a young age. So, you know, some specific examples. Uh, in our family, we really value community and interacting with people. And so one of the tech healthy rhythms we have is to have a digital free meal. And so to make sure that you know, technology is put away, if someone phones me during dinner, I will never answer. I won't receive text messages, for example. And and we've done that right from the get-go. And so when my daughter got her first phone when she was a teenager, then it wasn't even need, I didn't even need to say, you know, you won't use your phone at the dinner table because I'd passed on that value through the behaviors and conversations that we'd had. And instead, you know, we talk. We talk about our high for the week and our low for the week and our buffalo, our high-low buffalo, the buffalo being a strange, interesting, creative idea so that's one tech rhythm that we didn't sit down and say, you must do this in order to not use tech. We just modeled a particular way of living and passed that down through habits. 
I talk about tech-free car trips and how it can be valuable to talk during tech, you know, during car rides and not to have individual music on individual headphones. And that's a value we put into our family fairly early. And, you know, there's other rhythms that you can put in that are tech and non-tech based to pass on the things you want to pass on into your kids' lives. Another one we've done in our life is we've had a fire pit every month, you know, and that's, we don't bring our tech and we invite the neighbors. We have neighbors who are wealthy. We have neighbors who are really poor. And we found the fire pit was the best way to get a community together without all the different social divides of rich and not so rich. And so that's a rhythm in our family. You know, we cook spuds and we have a neighborhood fire in the backyard. So it doesn't have to be just tech stuff. It's about using rhythms to intentionally create the culture and the values you want to see passed on in your family. And it's a really beautiful way to counteract the negative side of boundaries and screen time and some of the stuff that you just need to put in place for kids' safety. One of the things that struck me as I read through that part of the book was, like so many things in our lives, just having a little bit of strength to not fall down the trapdoor of the path of least resistance. It is the path of least resistance to let your kids have an iPad in a drive that's anything more than seven minutes because they want that. But of course, that time together in the car is is golden time. It is the path of least resistance to let people sit at the meal and scroll through their phone and have a look at whatever they're interested in because at least they're sitting there eating. And it takes a little bit of effort and discipline to put some boundaries around that, but the rewards are enormous, just like so many parts of our lives. The path of least resistant is easy in the moment. It's very short-term thinking, but just a little bit of discipline, a little bit of boundary just gives us so much value. That was partly affirming for us as a family. We're very much into car rides being a family time. We listen to music together, but more than anything else, we chat and that will never change. Our kids will never have an iPad in the car And because that's so valuable, we could be better at dinner time. Um, Dinner time is also a time for us to organize tomorrow and the weekend and the next. So my wife, especially because she does lots of the organizing, will jump on and and check the dates or send that message that's got to be sent to organize this activity. But I think we can be more disciplined about that. And there's lots of data to suggest that mealtime, spending time together talking as a family at mealtime has all sorts of positive knock-on effects socially and emotionally in young people. Now, I'm just going through the framework very quickly because I'm going to ask you for your three nuggets of wisdom in a minute, Daniel. But the next part was encouraging adventures. I love the story you told about getting your family out on a a walk and you described the walk. It sounds like a beautiful place, but your youngest was very reluctant to go because he was involved in some kind of screen. He wanted a pajama day. He imagined his day being with a game or a screen or a movie and you dragged him out, you know, you, you cajoled kindly to begin with, but in the end, it was almost a physically dragging. But he, of course, and this, this story reverberates around every family, he absolutely loved it when he got out there. And when you asked him at the end of the week, his best part about the week, it was that walk he didn't want to go on. I think we've all had that experience. And once again, it's just the ability as a parent to be strong and caring and loving and have those boundaries and and be the adult, knowing logically through experience and maturity that actually this experience of going on a bushwalk is going to be infinitely better than that game you're sitting there playing. I just need to drag you away from the dopamine hits you're getting right now and take you there and, and show you. And the last part of your framework is to rely on others. And this is really important as well. Just that idea that to 
create connections with other families and parents who have the same sort of values, to have those conversations with other people in your life so that you know that when your kids go to someone else's house for a play date, it's not five hours of screen time because they're a family who have similar values to you. Do you want to just have a word on this last part of your framework, Daniel? Yeah, look, it's the hardest one because we live in a hyper-individualized culture. You know, it's hard enough for us as parents to have friends even and people we could honestly go to in hard times and talk with. But I, you know, I do love the, it was a TED talk I heard, but the idea that when we're in crisis, when life is really hard, it won't be our thousand Twitter friends or our, you know, followers or our, you know, thousand Facebook friends that will be there. It's the one or two people we do life with who you've cooked a meal for and they'll cook a meal for you. You've been willing to talk about how hard your marriage is at the moment and they're willing to share how hard it is that they're struggling with, you know, back pain. Do you know what I mean? It's it's the, doing life with real, real people relationships. in real places, you know, uh, in real time. And we can't get past that. In fact, from a health and happiness point of view, if we don't do life with others, we will be less happy and less healthy, most likely, and we'll certainly live less long from a mortality statistic perspective. So community is so important. Real relationships cannot be replaced. And yet we have to almost structure this in our life nowadays because of the way our culture shaped life in and around us. So again, it goes back to the idea of patterns and rhythms. How might you intentionally create a sense of community, a sense of pattern and rhythm. And I talk very practically about how we've done that and how you might go about uh, creating a little bit of life with others. And obviously try to choose people who you can talk parenting with to reinforce values so that when your child says, I'm the only one who doesn't have a phone at school, well, you can say, but isn't it great that I've got, you know, you've got Kate and you've got Tom and you've got Jill who are part of our community, and actually they're going to wait until high school. So let's just do what we all do together. It makes a tremendous difference, but it takes a bit of effort to be able to do that and to create that community, although the joy and the rewards are incredible. That is such an important line of thinking, and that's where your book is well beyond that, hey, this is how you set up tech in your family. It's a, it's a much more holistic piece than that. All right, now, before I ask you for your three nuggets, I was going to give myself a plug on the E for Encourage Adventures one of the things I'm obsessed with, Daniel, is sport, and I, I still not only watch a lot of sport on TV, which I can now feel good, good about because that's passive screen time, <laughs> I still play a lot of sport. I have my first ocean swim for the summer this weekend, and my oldest boy is doing for the second time. He did it for the first time this time last year. I still play cricket. I'm the coach of my son's cricket team. The kids all play tennis. We have a very active life. My wife and I are, all, are both very active people and always have been. And that's great. It's almost like by default, we've fallen into that because they were our life habits. But it makes me feel so good because in everything that we're talking about, limiting time, putting boundaries around it, we've got to create an alternative. It's not enough just to stay at home inside and say, okay, we've had enough screen time now. We've actually got to do something else. And getting down to the cricket nets, working on our forward defense, working on our bowling action, having an extra swim session going away to the beach as a family to watch me compete in the old man category and my son compete in the little guys, the little nippers category is just so important. It's It comes to our family very naturally, but if you're struggling with that right now, then it's not enough. It's not just about turning off the screen. It's creating some alternatives and they don't have to cost money. There is a million national parks in Australia that are free. It's creating those adventures for kids that is so important. All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. I feel really passionately about that. And I just feel so lucky 
that it's almost by accident that our family has that. It just, because I have this DNA strand that means I'm obsessed with sport, we've kind of got that already, which is lucky because it would be hard to start from scratch, but it's so important for families. Daniel C., this has been an amazing conversation. Hit us with your three nuggets so I and the listeners can remember this tomorrow and and next week. Oh, look, I mean, one nugget is just to be kind on yourself because parenting is super hard, you know, and I just love what you described then. Uh, for us, it's not sport, but we have other values in our life that we shape around, you know, our, our habits around, uh, particularly faith and community and eating together. But I love that uh, the idea, you know, Stephen Covey says, you can't say no without a greater yes. And so, you know, it's it's not about saying no, it's about what can you do to live life. But be kind on yourself because it's super hard to be a parent and start with very, very small changes one at a time. I hope in my book you'll find that you're not overwhelmed by an enormous amount of things you have to do, but it's more these are some practical, simple things you could do to make a tremendous difference. Like, yeah, start kicking a football with your kid once a week, give them sunshine and start to give them a thirst for the footy instead of just what's happening online. So the simple things make a difference. I don't know how many nuggets I would have. I, look, I, I think my main nugget is just the vision of life unplugged, life that's human, which is why I called it Raising Humans. It's not about technology. It's about experiencing a beautiful life together. You know, I, I asked my kids on a bushwalk not that long ago, you know, what are some of the best experiences of your life? And I was so beautifully shocked at their responses. You know, my daughter said, I just love that I used to you know, jump on the trampoline with my neighbor. <laughs> and and one of my my son said, I love that used to play guitar to put us to sleep and used to get this star book out and make funny jokes, shining a light through the star book. You know, my younger son loved that we took him to Disneyland, but it was still about the relationships, the adventure, the excitement, the danger. And I reckon if you think about the life you've lived and the best moments you've had in life or even the worst, they'll almost always relate to people, adventures, doing something meaningful together. They're almost always unplugged. And so I just, my big vision, my big take home is just think about what life you want for yourself and your kids and put tech within that vision, but don't start with tech and screen time and cyber safety and all this stuff. Start with what does it look like to be human? What does it look like to live a beautiful, rich, broad and diverse life in and out of screens and then try to make some small shifts based on that vision? That is a beautiful place to leave it. Daniel C., I have been podcasting for more than seven years, but I can't think of an episode I've done that's more important than this one. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate your show. And that was Daniel C. I told you that conversation is a game changer and his book is incredible. Raising Tech Healthy Humans, How to Reset Your Children's Tech Habits and Give Them a Great Start to Life. If there's one book you should buy and read and share with your family and friends this year, I think it should be this one. I got so much from talking to Daniel and reading his book, The Downstairs and Upstairs Brain, Lean Back and Lean Forward Tech, And of course, that powerful concept, we're raising adults, not children. Daniel left us with two nuggets of gold. Number one, be kind to yourself. Parenting is hard. And number two, create a vision of a life unplugged, a beautiful life together. And don't forget about Daniel's free online toolkit, 
It's there to help you navigate this very modern challenge. A link to the toolkit is in the show notes for this episode. As well as that link to the toolkit, I'll share all the lessons I took from my conversation with Daniel on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And don't forget to check out Your Story Pod. It's an awesome idea for a Christmas present for that person in your life who's impossible to buy for. Connect with me in all the usual places and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.